What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host, Ken Milam and John Swan, as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. This episode is brought to you by a landlocked naval officer who needed a new hobby outside of drinking snotty IPAs. Thank you, Mark. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Hive Jive. I am, I'm going to give you guys all a disclaimer up front. We are going through and we're still playing with our new toys and our new technology. And today we are actually <laughs> testing out this feature of the soundboard where I can hook my cell phone directly into the soundboard and then make a call and route that call through and then over into the actual episode. So this is not using the live system that you've heard us talk about a few times before. It's not any of that. This is literally just my phone, the soundboard, and one of our, our new mic setups and everything. So that's what the plan is for today. And joining me for this test is Miss Natalie. Hello. John. <laughs> so... Natalie has been on the show before. As you all know, we had Natalie back in uh, the beginning of this year, in the beginning of 2020, when we did our Africa, Australia, and Accents Oh My episode. And Natalie was there in the studio with me with her beautiful French accent. And we had Catherine in the studio with her beautiful Australian accent. And we talked about the different things that were going on both in Africa and Australia and the things that the ladies had experienced and the work they were doing. But we've never actually really went in depth on what you do, Natalie, and uh, the the setup that you have here in the United States, um, actually just not too far outside of Austin, and your company, Be Mindful, and kind of what that stands for. So I kind of wanted to bring you on today, and we could, uh, you know, let everybody know what it is that you do, and just kind of go from there, and then get your perspectives on some things. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really to be back, and really to you guys and uh i'm looking forward to our discussion Woo uh, i did hear the phone cut mm -hmm. out a couple of times there and i don't know if that was a signal issue or not but just so everybody is aware we we've been playing with this we had some technical difficulties there was some water involved in an electrical place that it should not have been <laughs> and so bear with <laughs> us as we go through and uh and check this all out so then Natalie, go in and kind of give us an overview, like what is Be Mindful? What does it stand for? And kind of what is the mission of that organization between you and Les Crowder there? Okay, so it started about three years ago, roughly. And um, initially I had created the Hayes County Beekeepers Association as the natural um um, option in around Austin where we had clubs that were more uh, traditional, more conventional. And uh, from there, I decided I wanted to um, get into the business of uh, keeping bees to make a living a little bit, but also to just kind of uh, expand the natural beekeeping education availabilities around. Um, so I just kind of created Be Mindful initially and uh, had some Langstroth, some Tabar Hives, and um, was really good friends with Les Crowder. So I started talking to him and said, hey, how about we join forces and uh, try to get something a little bit uh, bigger done so that we can um, spread the word about natural beekeeping. And also um, we can use beekeeping uh, and education in beekeeping as a tool to um, make 
beekeeping accessible to um, communities that are at risk and um, people that might need to make an income um, on a small budget initially. And beekeeping is perfect for that, especially tabar beekeeping. So we uh, have been trying to uh, make it accessible through education and community building uh, for more natural and sustainable beekeeping that can generate some income, dignified income for communities at risk. So uh, we do that through education and also um, teaching them how to make that uh, um, profitable, that activity profitable. And in addition, we're trying to do it um, for future generations, for uh, younger generations to learn how to do beekeeping in a natural and sustainable way. So we have like uh, youth scholarships and um, school hives that we work with where we donate bees and we volunteer to try to teach them how to do beekeeping that way. It kind of uh, took us um, to various parts of the world. We, we, I, you and I we were talking not that long ago about my trip to the Congo. So we're, we're branching out and uh, reaching out to various rural international communities where we're uh, wanting to help them out um, using beekeeping to make money, basically, and get them out of poverty. Uh, so, for example, locally in the United States, we work with the Community First Village, uh, which is a community of, of residents that were or are still um, homeless, and they try to give them some housing and some um, basically jobs to make a living, a dignified income. So we went there and uh, donated some um, beekeeping training, some bees, we work with them in their apiary trying to teach the residents how to do beekeeping and sell their honey. So those are the kind of things we kind of try to do. And the, the concept here is because Les Crowder is an inspiration to me and we're trying to lift people and his favorite say is to, is to say that together we rise. So by bringing people up uh, we want them to have access to a dignified source of income. But to be honest with you, the um, other um, goal is to make beekeeping um, kind of like an option for everyone um, on a small budget, low cost, simple, uh, easy to manage, and uh, to spread that across um, households so that we don't have to rely as much on commercially product producted produced, oh, my French sometimes comes up, produced um, honey. We, a lot of us can produce our own honey out of, own, out of our own backyards because uh, this way we know exactly what's in it. We know if there's chemicals or not in there. We know if it's been cut with other products or if it's been poorly um, stored. So it's another way to bypass the commercial beekeeping aspect of things. Now that's and and that is extremely admirable and uh, and a noble goal all the way across the board there on the the concepts of that. But that very last part, especially, absolutely. If you've got your own beehive in the backyard, you're responsible for managing it. You know everything that has been done to it, and you can know the purity of that source of of a food product. You know, be it the honey or the wax or anything that you're harvesting out of that hive. You know exactly what has been done and you have more control over it than if you buy that on the market 
and end up with, you know, well, it might have come from the United States. It might have come from four other states via somewhere else that we don't want to get stuff. It could be adulterated. It could be mixed with uh, corn syrup or rice syrup. You know, there there's all kinds of different things in there. So that is is great. And as everybody knows, um, Les is very big on not necessarily frugal or frugality, but uh, budget-minded. You know, like he will turn any type of reuse and resource type material back into something else and, and convert that into a hive. And that's kind of what got Ken uh, obsessed with doing the barrels that were the cut in half blue barrels and turn them into swarm traps and stuff was from some of the stuff that he learned from going through and like reading Les's book and hearing about Les in the past and the interview that we had done with Les. So the budget minded, everybody can do it at home. You can reuse your things that you have laying around and put them into something that's been repurposed that can then give back to both in some regards, your stress levels and your mental well-being, but also the well-being of the family by being able to provide a natural food source there. So that is amazing. That is great. Well, and then we really get something out of it because it speaks to us, but mostly uh, Les Crowder is a minimalist. I think that might have been the word you were looking That's for. a better term, yes. And, yeah, and in his book, Top Bar, Beekeeping, um, practices for organic practices for honeybee health he describes kind of his philosophy and ways to achieve that goal uh, he can build hives and you can uh, anybody can build hives basically with the, the plants of the top of hives that he has in his book and um on nothing if you use reclaimed woods basically and a few maybe a handful of screws um, or, or you can even do it with a hammer if you're good at it. But he kind of explains how you can do it on a very minimal budget, which is why it works so well for Africa or for Community First Village, right? And um, he's just kind of a, uh, wanting to make sure that people are rising thanks to that. I was thinking about something else you were mentioning, but uh, not forget. So. That's okay. <laughs> if, it, uh, if it comes back and pops back into your mind, just feel free to interject. And in. Yeah, no worry. Right. Um so for all of our listeners out there, we, we've had different episodes on kind of like the Hive Jive tries to to walk that fine line between the worlds of, of treatment and the worlds of treatment free and give options and things out there and insights to that. So for everybody listening, if you could give the concept of treatment free, like what does treatment free mean to you? And then we'll kind of dig a little bit deeper into some of the facets of that. Sure. So um, actually, that's a tricky question because the, the term of treatment-free beekeeping is a very controversial one and it's hard to define. It means different things to different people, um, which is why we we are, in effect, treatment-free beekeepers because we don't put, uh, to us, what it means is that uh, you don't put anything in the beehive that the bees wouldn't have put in um, on their own. So uh, Things like oxalic acid, which is uh, considered to be an organic acid treatment uh, to us, doesn't belong there in the concentrations that it's being used as a treatment, right? It's like, I don't remember, 5,000 or 10,000 times more concentrated than you would find it in honey or spinach or anything else. And like Dr. Paracelsus said at some point, he's the father of uh, modern toxicology. Basically, it's the dose that makes the poison, right? So... In effect, by hyper-concentrating those substances, even though initially they're found in nature uh, in their natural states, uh, organic acid, um, um, I'm sorry, uh, oxalic acid, formic acid, you know, hops, um, 
uh, beta acids, all these things, um, which are considered the organic kind of treatments um, at the bottom of the pyramid um, uh, of uh, treatments, that they are still highly super concentrated and as such are poisonous. I mean, there's a reason why um, the applicators of oxalic acid, for example, have to wear gloves, masks, uh, respirators, goggles, and it's a hyper dangerous um, concentrated product. Well, we consider that, you know, and, and to each their own. So that's the thing. Uh, people are free to be keep the way they want, but we think that um, the way to keep bees naturally without putting any of those substances in is um, uh, gonna preserve them from unintended consequences such as queen kills, adult kills, brood kills, um, you know, uh, absconding, supersedure events. And in, in effect, uh, we prefer to not trade off uh, mite drops for um, those treatments because it, it, to us, it's not worth it. So for us, the treatment-free is just basically chemical-free natural beekeeping. Uh, the only thing that we might use that we uh, wouldn't find in a beehive uh, as far as foreign substances is concerned is on, in times of uh, extreme dearth uh, as emergency um, intervention, we might use some, um, some feeding. Uh, if we don't have any honey uh, left from our hives, then we might resort to going to sugar syrup, simple cane sugar, um, simple syrups, right? right? And so that's the only substance we're willing to put in uh, the hives. Um, also, we try to not intervene and go into the hives and disrupt the brood's nest as much as possible. We try to respect the biology of the bee and leverage that to create ways to naturally in empower the bees to uh, fend for themselves on their own and develop strategies and, and uh, potentially some evolutions um, which will allow them to fend for themselves. So things like if we see uh, problems with um, brood's nests and, and brood in general disease of any kind or some mites uh, signs that are showing uh, they're, you know, negatively impacting the colony, then we might take um, action by offering brood breaks or requeening with better stock and, and just kind of uh, monitor that. The other aspect of that is that we are scientific based. So we leverage the precepts of the integrated pest management pyramid, meaning that we will uh, follow the science and stick with the base, uh, the bottom levels of the integrated pest management. For those of uh, your listeners who don't know what the integrated pest management pyramid is, it's basically uh, any husbandry um, industry, uh, um, farming industry that's dealing with animals and bees are animals. Um, they have pests and pathogens that as, at times can overwhelm them or create issues. Well, science has developed technique and approaches that allow um, the people keeping those animals to intervene uh, based on the level of severity. And you should always start with cultural 
interventions first, and then that's the base of your pyramid. And then a, a little bit higher, you've got mechanical interventions where you're actually manipulating frames and, and putting um, traps and, and things like that. You also have some biological interventions which are not very um, common or uh, efficient uh, with beekeeping, but in other uh, industries that might work. And then you go up and up the pyramid and at the top, very top, you have the um, uh, chemical interventions and uh, the organic uh, treatments are considered a chemical intervention as well as the synthetic uh, treatments. So that's kind of, uh, we try to respect that and stay at the bottom of the pyramid by only using uh, cultural intervention, meaning well-fed queens that are well-mated, um, local resilient survivor stock that's uh, better adapted to local cycles of forage and weather, and therefore they're going to be less prone to um, stress, um, and they'll have more, uh, if she's well-mated, she will have a wider range of sisterhoods with different abilities that will allow the colony as a superorganism to better adapt to a lot more um, different situations that might be presented to them, right? It's basically hybrid vigor. And if you go with that, you have a better colony than one that's got inbreeding depression where the, the queen is not as well mated or she's not local, um, you know, to the, to the area and stresses um, add up and end up um, causing them to uh, be overwhelmed by the pests and pathogens because their immune system is uh, taxed too much. So um, the, in addition, we, use, uh, we prefer to use natural comb, which uh, we believe is uh, better transmitting the chemical and, uh, well, chemical, you'll still have that in foundation, but if, if you have foundation, you're not gonna have the same transmission of vibration, which is a way that honeybees are uh, communicating where sources of forage are and um, quality and, and all kinds of messages are transmitted throughout the colony via vibration, right? So if you um, put a hard back to their combs and, and they're a lot more rigid, then you're dampening that communication and um, you're actually having a negative impact on the health of your colony according to what we uh, we're looking at. You asked us what our definition of natural uh, treatment-free beekeeping is. This is kind of part of it. Yeah, no, that's, and that's great. And that's actually one of the beautiful things about like a top bar hive is you just have that bar of wood across there. Maybe um, sometimes it has a guide to it. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, just kind of depends on, on where it's at in the colony and, and how you've uh -huh. built it and the resources you had. But the the overall though is that they build their wax like they would in nature it's all natural there's no foundation supporting it or inside of it um your war a hives would be the same concept and then if you wanted to mimic that in like a langstroth colony you pop the foundation out and you don't use any type right. of foundation inside there and that goes through and, and can help out for sure so that 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 is all actually that's an excellent definition and very very detailed to go through and kind of give the listeners the the difference between that and then also for those of you out there who hear different terminology you can kind of go through and you can break those down into different things so you've got treatment versus treatment free but treatment free could also be broken out to say well this is chemical free 
So you right. may do certain aspects of the IPM. You may go through and you may do mechanical treatments where you're doing the brood break, you're, you're separating things right. out, but you're still doing some form of manipulation, but you're not using right. those chemicals. And so there's, there's different things out there that everybody can kind of follow their own little path. Um, it, it's almost like the mind numbing and overwhelming types of diets that there are out there now, you know, from, from everything from vegetarian to vegan to pescatarian. Oh, but I'm vegan well, and I don't do X, Y, Z, but I do, you know, right. ABC over here, but this other vegan doesn't. And like, it's the same concept. There can be so many different levels and everything to it for sure. But I would say it goes beyond that because in a way it's a lot simpler to do it this way um, and, and just let the bees kind of uh, trust them to do things that they know and have been doing for a long time. Um, I wanted to add that the, the foundation less also promotes natural cell building, which usually is smaller, but not only that, that allows them to build cells to whatever needs they have at specific periods of the year which are fluctuating constantly it's a flow of uh, ebbs and flows and um they can grow some drones they can spread their genetics and the overall population if that's a colony that's healthy and locally resilient a survivor stock then that allows them to spread their genetics and it actually uh, benefits the entire population around that area absolutely so, i mean yeah i think that the small um the foundation, you know, um, they artificially started um, building those for the bees and using those because they wanted bigger bees. I think it was in the 50s. And um, the end result is that those bees um, got bigger, but they got more susceptible to pests that are leveraging their, their um, biological cycles to uh, afford them more time, like the varomite specifically to afford them more times to have more generations of uh, offspring because the size is bigger and that gives them more um, uh, time to that requires more time to develop in those cells and that leaves more time for the foundress uh, mites to have more offspring. So it's actually unintended consequences that we're trying to minimize by uh, going back to the basics of what the bees do themselves and leveraging that as our guide to um, how we want to keep them and intervention. So I wouldn't say that it's not doing anything because it actually requires a better understanding of the bee biology and, and the colony biology and have more observation uh, of what's going on in the colony when you go in and look at the brood's nest or you take into account the entire um, state of the colony based on what's going on outside, you see that they've got resources, that their bird's nest looking good or it's contracted because either that's the winter dearth or it's the summer dearth in some areas. And so you get better in tune and it takes more practice uh, in the end to really understand how things work. But initially, I think it's, and I believe it's a lot easier uh, to get started because you don't have to manage things like, uh, and I'm, here I'm talking specifically about top highs. You are doing it in a horizontal way. And then, so you're only have that, um, parameter to worry about and the bees will build horizontally and sequentially one comb after another, and the bird's nest will travel horizontally on that axis, which makes it very easy to understand and manage and see what the bees are doing. Uh, whereas in a horizontal, uh, vertical uh, context, it's a bit harder to manage the bird's nest because um, 
Um, it's got the vertical axis and their horizontal axis at the same time. And the bird's nest can be spread through different boxes and you have to kind of like swap and, and go back and forth and understand where you're going to put your combs. And to me, it's a lot more complicated. So it's uh, the natural beekeeping itself is uh, no nonsense, but requires understanding of the bee biology. So you need to educate yourself a little bit better, I think. You could also not intervene as much if you wanted, but in the long run, I think that it's a detriment to the colonies because pests and pathogens can um, um, take their toll. And if you don't have those interventions of brood breaks or requining or, or just kind of uh, uh, managing the food sources and things like that, then you might end up losing your colony. So it's not doing nothing. Right. Tree beekeeping is absolutely not not doing nothing. It's it's uh, actually being more in in tune with what the bees are doing and uh, knowing when um, you have issues, understanding the signs of pests and pathogens, and uh, being able to diagnose what's going on, and and then to intervene in a timely fashion. Because if you, if you wait too long, then you end up with problems. Right. So ultimately, being natural and being treatment free does not mm-hmm. constitute front porch beekeeping. <laughs> no, or, or hands-off beekeeping. Right. I yeah. think that, uh, yeah, it makes you a better beekeeper, in my opinion, in the long run, because, uh, because it makes you understand how the bees function and uh, be able to predict. You, you become more observant, not only of the bee, but what's going on around you in the weather and the forage. Right. And everything is tied together and you can beekeep more holistically that way. Well, and I think that's what truly makes the the best thing for, for beekeepers out there. And, you know, for anybody who has been listening to the show for, you know, almost two years now, you've heard me repeat multiple times over and over, you have to look inside the colony. You have to know what's going on mm-hmm. in the colony. The answer to every single question that Ken likes to ask me is always, did you look inside the colony? Because do I need to feed? I don't know. Did you look inside the comb? Is there food in there? Are they bringing in pollen? Is That's there nectar? Right. Um, am I in a dearth? Where are you located? Yeah. Sorry. No, but, but that's just it. You've got to look inside there. And by becoming more in tune with what's going on and learning the natural ebb and flow of the colony, then you can better anticipate and help mitigate whatever the bees may need based on that, not based on a calendar, not based on a book, not based on a YouTube video, but based on the actual colony that you're looking at. And then you can also learn to how to help each individual colony because every colony is unique and they have their own rhythms and their own flows. One colony may have a stronger forage force and therefore is able to take advantage of this current nectar flow that's going on, whereas a smaller colony may not. So you can't just blanket feed and blanket treat and blanket this and that, you know, you have to know what each colony needs and then make yourself attuned to that and, and help mitigate those needs. Well, and that's, that's a very good point because that's why I always say there's no recipes that people are asking, when should I feed? Should I feed now? Should I keep feeding? Well, that, I don't know. It depends what you see. First of all, everybody be keeping is local. So, um, where are you located? What's your weather doing? What's your forage doing right now? What's, what are the season and where are you at in that cycle? 
what your colony has been doing, what you see in there, there's no recipes. We cannot be keep our recipe. And that's the issue I have a little bit also, not just the negative impact it has actually on the colony toxicity wise or, or um, um, basically health wise that the treatment have, but also the fact that a lot of beekeepers tend to use that as a, uh, a way to um, potentially prevent blanket, like you were using I, the, the word, I like to say they, they shouldn't prophylactically treat without understanding why they're doing it. They, it's not a security, it's not a, a insurance, it has a toll, a trade-off on the health of the colony and it shouldn't be done without very specific reasons. The other thing that I want to talk about is, and it's kind of like um, something that uh, not many people know, is that those thresholds, uh, specifically on the viral mites, uh, uh, you know, when you evaluate, when you do counting mites, and they say you should treat after three per hundred mites, uh, three mites per hundred bees, um, those thresholds have been artificially set extremely low um, so that the treatments would be done more prophylactically, more um, systematically. And I think that's, uh, that's something that somewhat of a concern, right? So what's the reason behind that? And, and again, there's some colonies that do really well with high uh, levels of mites because they're not just... Um, tolerant of the mites, they're also resistant to the virus, viruses that they transmit. So that uh, that point that you're making about, uh, it all depends on what you see and what the colony is doing, every colony is different, that applies there as well. So why prophylactically uh, blanket treat is my question. Right. And that's that's an excellent point. And, and that's one of the things where, you know, I've, I've got people that will reach out and they'll ask questions, Ken will ask questions and they'll say, well, you know, it's fall, I should go treat my hives. Well, no. Have you checked your hives? Did you do a mite count? If you did, where did it come out at? You know, if it was outrageously high, then yes, there needs to be some form of intervention. But if you only have one or you didn't have any, then why are you going to go treat that colony? It's extremely stressful on the colony. All the treatments are stressful, regardless what type you do. Um, So why Mm -hmm. put them through that if they don't need it? Um, We had a... Back when I first started, and I've, I've told this story on the show before, so I'll, I'll tell a kind of truncated version, but when uh, Mark Dykes was still the apiary inspector here in Texas, I had him come out. Uh, technically, Mary, who is the current apiary inspector, chief apiary inspector anyway, um, is the one that came out to do the test. But I called Mark and I said, hey, I need these tests done. So Mary came out. We tested the colonies. Mark went through and did the review on it. Then Mark calls me personally, and he was like, dude, you've got a problem with the hives in your backyard, the mount, the mite counts are just insane. And I was like, Oh no. So, you know, we went in and and looked at it and they were both the same colonies from the same region. You know, I bought them from the same distributor kind of thing. And so what we ended up deciding to do was to requeen one of them with the, uh, the Russian carniolan stock of bees that I started using. Um, I think actually that one may have just been straight Russian. And then we did the Russian carniolan after, but it it might've been the Russian carniolan right off the bat. And we requeened one colony with that. The other colony we did not, and we kind of left it to see what would happen. And what we ended up finding was that the colony that had the Russian genetics in it, be it the Carniolan hybrid or just the pure Russian, that colony ended up doing amazing. They were strong. They were healthy. Everything was great. But the mite counts were still through the roof. 
And the mm-hmm. thing that made him stop and scratch his head was that we we would have expected that if you had that high of a mic count, there would have been some detrimental effect or mm-hmm. something that could have been observed to say, well, this, you know, this mite level equals this colony is going to die. But then we went through and we looked and that wasn't the case. Whereas in the colony that we did not change the genetics of, they did show those signs and those symptoms. And so there was some other factor that clearly wasn't just grooming. It wasn't just a hygienic from grooming and the, the bees like biting the mites or taking the mites off. Because if that were the case, we wouldn't find the mites on the bees, but we were finding high levels of mites, but low symptoms and low signs of any other detrimental attributes to that. And it was really fascinating because it called into question, you know, like what mechanisms are really going on that are helping that genetic strain and why. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. And um, the other thing I would like to say is that a lot of those um, treatments are actually not very efficient at all. That's you don't true. get that much benefit from them. There's, yeah. I think, one treatment, and I forget what is the. Uh, there's a handbook there with all the treatments and the um, the um, uh, impact that it has on the health of the colony and the efficiency levels that it provides, depending yeah. on the seasons. And it's all the stuff. Varroa Management Guide. That's the one, right? And there's one, I think, that kind of has a very temporary um, impact on a specific, um, based on specific parameters, because a lot of them are also temperature-specific or season-specific, or you cannot have honey or, or, or things like that. It becomes so complex that uh, it, the trade-off on the health of the colony plus the complexity and the cost and the time associated to using those treatments, to us, to Les Crowder and I, it makes no sense whatsoever for us to use it. Right. And and um, the other thing that I am probably going to go on a controversial topic here is that a lot <laughs> of the <laughs> bring it on. I'm not afraid to do that. I'm not afraid to do that. Um, is that a lot of the research that's developed those treatments and those thresholds and those um, uh, instructions on what to do with those mites and things like that? What's uh, who's financing that research and why isn't there more financing? behind natural beekeeping and understanding the bees a little bit better and to me there's a, a financial ulterior motive if you uh, can read between the lines of what's going on there and so there's the motivation approach why are so many companies uh, pesticide companies uh, so vested in the research and they're funding the research projects from major universities so you got people from major universities that have credentials uh, that are being put behind a lot of the resources being placed out there. And so you always have to look under the skirts of what's going on and what are the motivators. Follow the money is basically what I'm looking at here. The other aspect of that is that scientific research uh, is done a lot in isolation, which is um, for honeybee colonies, which are superorganism, is a very difficult um thing to extrapolate you know you a lot of those studies are done with uh, not very good bees to start with because they're usually donated and then they isolate you know oh i've got a one frame of bees and i'm doing this and i'm doing this experiment and this you know uh, in 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 the end it doesn't take into account the big picture because the the mechanisms that govern honeybee colony are so complex and so dependent on external factors they vary throughout the year, throughout the seasons. There is no way they can uh, uh, reproduce, uh, you know, the measured 
um, uh, experiments that are representative of the reality of a honeybee colony in nature. That's true, actually. There's, there's been a lot of a lot of the people that I've talked to, even at like Texas A&M, when they go through and they try to do some of these experiments and they try to replicate them, if they mm-hmm. have that colony as an uh, observation colony there inside the actual lab, they have an extremely hard time getting the mites to actually cooperate right. and reproduce and take hold. And and mm-hmm. so then that's a big factor there too. Like what is then happening to that colony that is interfering with that normal cycle and Yet, if you go out and you take that colony out in the wild or you have like a, a, a regular hive that's left out to its own and you pull from mm-hmm. there, the cycle is complete and everything seems to be functioning just fine. So there, by us attempting to do anything, exactly. we then influence it in one way or another. The, the very act exactly. of observing a scientific process affects the scientific process. Exactly. So there's, a, I would take it with a huge grain of salt and always question what um, things are being observed because they're observed in a vacuum in a superorganism that's actually not a vacuum. Yeah, there was a, some of the most fascinating things that kind of struck me when I was going through and doing the learning is we talk about how honeybees are an extremely important pollinator and we need them out there. We need all these things they do and they're an extremely efficient pollinator. But then there was a study that was done that showed honeybees were the worst pollinator there was. And the Mm -hmm. truth of that study was you need to take the plural off of it. A honeybee on its Mm -hmm. own accord was a horrible pollinator. A plant that was completely isolated, no insect was able to touch it, had a higher success rate of pollinating itself than if the honeybee visited it. And yeah, and they couldn't understand why. But then when you took into consideration, well, the bee is not the organism. The bee is like a cell in the body of the organism. Exactly. The organism is the colony, and the colony sends out these tentacles, and there's a an ebb and flow and a give and a take to it. So then when they redid that exact same experiment but allowed the entire colony to participate instead of just one bee, they ended up in the, the upper 90 percentile on effective pollination, and they learned that the true pollination isn't happening at the flower. It's happening inside the colony where the bees mm-hmm. bring the pollen back and then it gets Changed mixed up with the other pollen in exchange and goes back out. Yeah. So it's all about context. This is a great example that, that perfectly illustrates what I was trying to say. Um, there's other area of the colony where uh, that can be also exemplified, but this is a perfect, perfect way to illustrate that concept. So you joined us in the studio last week when we we had our uh, our first in person recording in what seems like eons, and mm-hmm. we uh, I brought up on there that we did have a listener that had reached out and she was talking about the whole my apiary inspector says I should let these colonies die because they do have high mite counts, but it's my very first year. This is my very first two colonies. I don't want to lose both of them. I've invested a lot. Like, what should I do? And, you know, I gave the the pros and cons of that and went through and, and said, well, you know, you can do this. You could treat if it is a, like, I don't want to lose them and it's the only way to get them to survive kind of thing. Um, but there, there are some other alternatives and stuff to that as well. And we talked about how if you do have a colony that is doing well and seems to be surviving better, you could requeen that other colony with those genetics to try to impart some of those attributes to that colony and kind of help that grow and go. So mm-hmm. for somebody that only has one or two colonies 
and wants to kind of do as close to a natural approach as they can, but they don't necessarily have the the backup of, well, I've got 10 other colonies out here that I can supplement from and stuff. What kind of advice would you have given to that listener? So, well, first of all, I would give her the um, assurance that even if they treat their colony, doesn't mean that they're going to survive. There's as many uh, treated colonies treated colonies that have problems that don't survive as they are colonies that are not treated that will um, kind of survive and do well. So it, it doesn't mean it's not a, a automatic rescue plan. So that's one thing. The other thing is I would say um, if it can't survive without being on life support uh, with some chemical treatments, then basically what uh, what you need is to get better genetics. And I don't mean necessarily vera, sensitive hygiene, you know, super wonder uh, bees that you find out there. I mean, your local stock, survivor stock, you can find bees that either swarm, that might be from another apiary or whatever, but you can, fi- you can get lucky and find truly local survivor stock that's been uh, uh, adapted and that's growing in trees or that's been surviving on their own uh, and when I mean survivor, that means it's uh, it's gone one uh, cycle, one winter, and, and done well, and are able to survive and do well the next year. That's survivor stock, and um, go with local uh, stock, and make sure that uh, you don't start by buying bees that are coming from, you know, uh, if you're in in um, in Michigan, don't buy bees from Georgia, and and don't. In my opinion, you should get uh, bees that are not treated. Uh, local survivor stock. And if you start with that, you already have a good um, leg on success. Now, if you don't have that, you can do uh, uh, a lot to try to minimize the stress that's causing a lot of those viruses that they're, that are transmitted by the mites. Especially, and that's really the biggest problem that colonies usually have is those mites, right, when the pests and pathogens are concerned. So if you, if you minimize that stress, those viruses are not going to uh, basically, what you call that, um, affect themselves or, or, or appear. They're not going to take hold because the immune system of the colony is better uh, and stronger when there's less stress. So make sure they have a lot of, uh, uh, if you live in an area that doesn't have good nutrition, good forage, then make sure you provide some supplemental uh, resources because that's going to help them have a stronger immune system and try to go with natural comb over foundation try to go with i would argue horizontal beekeeping rather than vertical beekeeping because um it's actually <laughs> a misconception in my mind that uh, vertical beekeeping in the langstroth boxes is more natural because bees build uh, nests in cavity in tree cavities that are vertical Yes, they do so, but they start at the ceiling of the cavity and build down and sideways. They never build above their ceiling or above the initial cone, right? So it's highly disruptive, in my opinion, to have um, boxes added above their heads with empty space for them to build up. They will do it because they don't have a choice and they just kind of don't like the empty space. But it's more natural to have it put either under or um, like the nadiring process with the wire hives or that you can do, by the way, with your own Langstroth. So, um, but horizontal beekeeping will allow you to disrupt the bird's nest a lot less and therefore st- uh, stress your colonies a lot 
less. And with that, you're going to stack up. It's a matter of stacking up the deck, right? Go with local resilient survivor stock that's virus uh, resistant and mite tolerant. Go with well-fed and well-mated queens. That's the other thing. A lot of the queens out there, uh, especially the ones that you purchased, you purchase are not good uh, necessarily well fed or well bred because they are it's a whole uh, other uh, book but um, basically when you graft queens uh, you select worker uh, larvae that were not initially destined to be queens and queens are fed from the time the egg hatches they're fed a super nutritious diet of a better quality more quantity from the get-go. When you graft, you're taking larvae that are uh, to be grafted, viable to be grafted uh, without getting damaged, need to be a few hours to a day or two old, right? And those bees have been fed worker diet, which is poor and not as um, plentiful. So they're not going to be the same quality queens that you would have if you had like um, in a swarming or supersedure events. The bees are choosing to raise a new queen and they have the resources to do so uh, usually for swarming anyway. Superstitious is not always the case, but let's say swarming. Um, they're gonna have the resources to and select uh, the eggs, the larvae that are gonna be the queens from the time that they hatch. And those are gonna be super well-fed. That's gonna make them in turn more able to go out and mate and come back. And they're gonna be better mated uh, that way. And when the queen is better mated, then you have more genetic uh, um, uh, vigor uh, that uh, they can leverage to build up the colony uh, in, and have them more resilient in a way. So, so it's all linked together. And that, that kind of made me think of um, something that we've talked about on the show before in uh, kind of a high-level overview. And the... One of the newer pieces of research, and, and this all kind of goes hand in hand with some different things here, but they have they've shown that we thought initially, I guess I should say, that the queen made it with like 15 to 20 drones, but in reality, she can mate with up to 50 to 75 drones. The Correct. only thing that we're missing on that is that when we go in and we do these observations, not all of that sperm actually ends up making it to the sperma, spermatheca. Um, so it doesn't actually get stored. And when they do that sampling, they're not seeing all of the genetic input that was there. They're just seeing what made it to that actual reserve. Now, outside right. of that, they found that there is what they dubbed as a royal lineage, a genetic trait that is found more times than not in a queen, but is not represented in the rest of the worker stock. And it may be an actual egg that has a genetic profile from a specific drone that carries this profile that whenever you remove a queen from a colony and they go through and they choose on their own accord which eggs they want to turn into queens, they mm -hmm. more times than not are going to choose eggs that have that profile. But on the flip mm -hmm. side, they seem to go through and cannibalize those eggs in any other instance where they are actually removing them and that's why they're not seeing them in the worker population, mm -hmm. but they see it in the queen population and that's a way of the colony mitigating itself and selecting and doing its own kind of genetic altering in a way where this one attribute makes a better queen but doesn't make a great worker. And so they yes. go through and they, they take that out of there. 
That's fascinating. And I hadn't heard that, but it makes sense. So basically there's so many things that we don't understand um, of the honeybee super, super organism. It's so complex and we just are not beginning to understand some of the aspects of it. We cannot pretend to know that our interventions are going to be optimal and, and have no unintended consequences because the bees really know things that we don't. It might be uh, they might pick up on it based on pheromone messages that, you know, from the brood itself or from other uh, mechanisms that we don't even begin to understand. And it's not measurable or visible to us, but it still matters to them and to the health of the colony. Yep. And it's, you know, a lot of times it all boils down to we more times than not are our own worst enemies when it comes to things we think Absolutely. we're trying to help. But in turn, we created five other problems to solve the one problem that existed prior. <laughs> and that's the very good point. That's why I would also recommend that uh, beekeepers don't go in their colonies too often. Uh, too much, are, I mean, too many beekeepers are going in there every week or twice a week, or, you know, I would argue even every couple of weeks in some um, uh, periods of the cycles, the yearly cycles, that's too much. And then when you do go in there, you don't have to go through every single frame of bars of a comb of uh, the brood's nest because it's extremely disruptive. You're letting go temperatures, humidity levels, um, uh, pheromone messages, um, even the lights can be an issue for the brood. And every time you go there, you set them back a little bit, right? So you need to learn how to read the ex external um, combs of the brood's nest so you don't have to go and pilfer through the entirety of it. Um, every time you go in there and too often. Yes. And so, yeah. I would say also for somebody that only has a couple of hives, and by the way, it's great if they have a couple of hives because it's better than having just one colony, right? You can uh, help each other uh, with brood and, and just troubleshoot better. You can see and compare a little bit better how things are uh, going. And that kind of informs you into what needs to be done. So it's actually a good insurance uh, on your investments if you want to have two instead of one. But um, so basically having, if you don't have a lot of colonies, I would say uh, band up with other beekeepers, have a beekeeping buddy that's learning how to beekeep at the same time as you do. And that has a couple of highs. And then you have, like, I have a group of ladies. There are four of them. And one of them has two colonies and the other two have each one. So instead of each of them having one to two colonies, they have a group of people that they can discuss in and study with, and it's five colonies all of a sudden. So they can have more frame time and gar garner more experience without disrupting the colonies, uh, the individual colonies as much because they only go in there uh, one time and instead of going five times right. kind of a thing. That's a great, that is actually, that's, that's very advantageous. And that's something that we often in the, the beekeeper associations try to tell people too, because they're like, I need a mentor. I want a mentor. I need, I need one of you, one of the officers or, you know, somebody to come and do this. And that's not always feasible. But if there is somebody else in the association that is just down the street from you or a few miles away mm -hmm. and you guys can team up, you can go through right. and one of you can come over and inspect the other one's hive or vice versa, you're going to see mm -hmm. different situations, different scenarios, because every little micro climate is completely different. 
Um, and you're going to get more experience doing that than you are just looking at your colony only. And you can uh, pay a beekeeper to come and teach you, an experienced beekeeper, an educator, to come and teach your group. And it's going to be more financial advantages than having to go to every single one of them to pay that same person. There's mileage, there's the, the teaching fee and all that stuff that can be shared. That's true. You can you can have it as a, instead of a, a Tupperware party or a jewelry buying party, you can have right. a beekeeping party. private lesson party and you can have four of I your like friends that. come over and <laughs> have a master beekeeper show up and teach you how to do it. There you go. So that makes it more uh, financially advantageous. advantageous. But yeah, I mean, to go back to what we were saying initially, our goal is to try to make uh, natural, sustainable beekeeping accessible to to all uh, through education and better understanding of the superorganism, and as well as doing um, community building so that we can together rise based on that and use beekeeping as a, it's a fascinating pastime and it has so many advantages and benefits because it can be used for mindfulness as well. Yep. And in the in the world right now where we're all pretty stressed out and anxious, that has significant mental um, benefits. It does. It does indeed. And it is. It, there are times where we can get into situations where it is not a peaceful experience. It does happen. The bees are cranky. Yeah. You drop a frame. Something bad goes wrong. But for the most part. On a normal day with the bees in a normal mood and you being very mindful and cautious and going slow, it is a very mm-hmm. calming, very peaceful experience. And it's wonderful to have that, especially in these stressful times where there is so much other chaos going on. It's nice to be able just to zen out, you know, on the bees and and let that kind of wash over you and take the stress away. Yeah. And then, you know, the same way people are using horses for therapy, they can be used for uh, the colonies and the gentle ones anyway, they can be used for therapy as well. That is true. And it is a Mm -hmm. very, very beneficial way to go through and do that. Plus it's educational, it's sustainable. It is, it has so many other positive attributes associated with Mm -hmm. it that make it even that much better. And it teaches the kids that they're part of a whole community. And be mindful of all the, the that's going on and that everything is tied together so that their actions and the way they live their lives is going to be uh, having an impact on the whole. So There you go. See, you guys chose a perfect name. Be mindful. <laughs> it, w- it took a little thinking about it, but then it, it was so natural when I finally realized that that's kind of encompassing all of that at the same time that we just kind of. Oh, I like that. This is it. This has got to be it. I I think you, it was an excellent decision. It was meant to be. (laughs) Be. (laughs) Be. (laughs) Well, awesome. Well, I appreciate you joining us today, Natalie, and going through and discussing, you know, all of the concepts behind you and the association and what you and Les are trying to build. And uh, that is, it is just literally wonderful. And I also appreciate you being patient and going through and, and yet again, being someone helping us test this these new technological advantages that we can do to try to continue doing the podcast with hopefully a decent sound quality and being able to reach people in remote areas now since how we can't kind of come together like we used to. So that is extremely helpful on my part and I greatly appreciate that as well. Well, I'm extremely grateful to be your, your guest today and for everything that you do for the beekeeping community and and the education uh, world of the beekeeping world. 
And uh, also, I would like to say, uh, I wanted to add that um, Les is looking at um, helping out Jamaican uh, households with beekeeping, and I'm looking to more specifically help uh, Western Africa countries um, after the United States, right? We, we have other pet projects, and I wanted to uh, let you know that we've got some I've got something coming up uh, pretty soon where I'll, I might have to return to the Congo to work on the European uh, huge project uh, that's kind of tied in the one that I was doing before on um, uh, training, but this one's going to have a lot of funding. So I'm hoping that works out and that we can start traveling again to do that soon. And, that is, uh, that is actually, awesome. Um, like, yeah, like, like Les says all the time, uh, it's only together that we rise, right? That's right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Well, so in that case, then, for, for those of you listening abroad, um, if you are in Africa or the Congo or if you are in Jamaica and you're interested in learning more about these potential projects that are coming up, Natalie, tell them how mm-hmm. they can find you guys online, social media and whatnot. So we have a website, www.b with two e's, dash mindful.com. You can reach us at a B B E E mindful honey farms at gmail.com. And uh, we are on Facebook, uh, be mindful LLC and on Instagram also be mindful honey farms. And we'll be happy to answer anybody's questions. We've been talking to people in France and Africa and the, the Middle East and uh, other places uh, all over the United States. So we aim to uh, educate people in natural and sustainable beekeeping ways on the budget. So we're there to help. Awesome. That is awesome. Well, I thank you again for your time. I thank you for everything that you are doing, both here at a local level as well as a national and global level. We really need more individuals out there like yourself, and you are an amazing woman. And I just I wish you the best as as time goes on and you continue growing your your company there. Well, to you as well, because I think that your energy and the the quality of your uh, podcast is amazing, and I always enjoy listening to every single episode. And and just kind of uh, listening to you, I always learn something new. So thank you for everything you do as well. You're welcome. You're welcome. Everything except for when we mentioned redheaded mutts in the studio the other day, and you were like, "Hey, (laughs) (laughs) hey." Yes. That's right. Awesome. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in with us today for another episode of the Hive Jive. We greatly appreciate it. And there will be more goodies on the way. But until then, everybody, be mindful. Be good. You've been listening to the Hive Jive. We appreciate you joining us on our beekeeping adventures. And you can find out more information about today's episode online at thehivejive.com. And as always, thanks for listening. Oh,